This is Hunting Land, the podcast for landowners and land hunters with how-tos for habitat management and land investment. If you own, manage, or dream of owning land, this is the podcast for you. Clint, man, it's hard to believe with the heat outside, but it's getting to be the time of year where you really, if you're not already thinking about fall food plots, you better start right now because it takes a little bit of planning to coordinate, uh, getting everything together and making sure you got a good plan, good strategy. For this fall, you guys started work up at your place yet? Yep, we've got all the food plots sprayed and uh, talked to a few clients this week and several of them are already heading up to Lyme and, and start getting ready. It's, uh, I hope they got one of those, you know, cabs on their tractor with AC in it. It's, it's rough right now. But today, I'm excited about today's show because we are going to, you know, get the rundown and help everybody get a strategy for this fall and, and maybe think through some things that, you might not be thinking about. So today on the show, we've got Daniel Bumgarner with Wildlife Management Solutions with us. Daniel, welcome. Tell us about what's going on with uh, Wildlife Management Solutions. We talked to you last spring about spring food plots, but this is a pretty busy time of year for you guys, right? It is. It sure is. And uh, thanks for having me, Joe. We we are. We're really busy right now. We're taking a lot of calls. Um, you know, we're answering questions about uh, soil testing and what to plan on different sites. And uh, so just taking a, a high volume of calls at the office. We're also, um, we're shipping seed. So we're sending sending product to stores. So, um, you know, and, and not just blended products, but lots of um, individual varieties uh, that can help with, with, you know, different projects you may have going on. So what I want to know is this, about every, seems like about every third year, my food plots will totally fail. I'll just have a com- complete failure, maybe not on all of them, but on a lot of them. And I'm wondering what some of those reasons are. And I know it's maybe not the same reason every year. It could depend a lot on weather, but what, what are some common reasons why you see guys failing with their fall food plots? Yeah, sure. And, and there are, there's a lot of factors. Um, for, for one, uh, food plotting is farming. And, you know, so, so we do, we have to deal with the weather and when we're planting fall plots, it is the driest two months of the year in Alabama, Mississippi, uh, North Florida, wherever you are. And so, you know, a lot of times these guys are planting and we've got some moisture, some soil moisture, and that's a good time to plant, but we may plant those seeds and catch germination. And then we may go a month and we may not have a rain and we may lose a lot of that germinated seed. And, Hey, a lot of times just because, um, you know, you may not see those seeds come up. They may germinate. The seed may swell. It, it, it may be getting ready to, to burst out of the ground and, and uh, you know, it turns off dry and that crop's dead. So talking about those weather patterns, what, can, what do you look for? What I've always done is we, we set up work days. You know, we decide, hey, look, we're going to go up and we're going to plant. And we're just kind of like, weather be damned. You know, we're going to go up there and put our food plots in because it's the weekend after Labor Day. And, um, you know, some years that works out well, and some years it doesn't with rainfall. Do you do it that way? Do you just pick a day, or do you really look at the the conditions and try to focus on a a big rain event or soil temperatures, or Mm -hmm. what do you do? Yeah, no, we we do. We we look at the forecast. And and what I want to see is I want to see the cooling nights. When the nights are starting to cool off, then our soil temperatures are on a cooling trend. And even if the seed lays there without germination, as long as those soils are, are cooling off, you've got a much bigger window. Okay. Um, you know, if we plant 
And that next two weeks, they're calling on weather like we're having now. That's not a good thing. You know, if it's mid 90s, still, you know, upper 80s, um, really, really hot nights, still, you know, upper 70s at night, that, that's not good for the, these are cool season crops. So I, I want to kind of step back a little bit. Part of the reason why we would always pick a weekend was that we were trying to have our fields in good shape to be able to bow hunt on them. So in Alabama, we're talking about the middle of October. And so we were trying to get them in in time for that. But you've you've written some about this and we've interviewed you some about this in the magazine. And y'all, y'all have some products that allow hunters to plant back in the summer, right? And some of that forage is still available for bow season. But, and that allows them to kind of pick some later dates, right? For, yeah. for maybe gun season or later into the fall and winter. Yeah, that, that's correct. There are some really good summer crops that you can plant. Um, and you, you can plant those in the spring. You can plant them on up through July into the 1st of August. We can kind of see those weather, weather patterns in midsummer where we've got a week where they're calling on 30, 40, 50% chance of thunderstorms all week. And you can get some of those summer legumes in, whether they be iron and clay peas or buckwheat or lab lab or, you know, there's just lots of different varieties that um, they're going to be productive until we get a hard frost. And yeah. So do you recommend guys look into some later, like you mentioned, those cooler nights? When does that typically coincide for, for most guys in the southeast? Are we talking mid-September, late September, early October? What do you really like? Yeah, right. You know, we we will try to get started where we are at in central Alabama, uh, typically around the last week of September. Okay. And that's normally when we start seeing the first of the, the cool nights, you know, and especially if we're getting some wet weather, we'll try to catch that, uh, try to catch that wet pattern, you know, and the further you go south, the, the later you can back that up. All right. Well, let's get back to reasons why these food plots fail. So we, we talked a little bit about conditions, which is something we can we can watch and and do something about by changing our habits. But what about things we can't? So it seems like be, being in outdoor communications and being in outdoor journalism, I'm constantly talking about soil tests all the time. How many guys are really doing it? Uh, you know, not as many as there needs to be. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Is it too late right now? Here we are, you know, middle of August. Uh, is it too late right now to, to get a soil test in time for this fall planting and make it and, and make a difference? Like if you find that you're, you need lime or you need, you know, you need some major amendments, is it too late? It is not too late. Um, you know, we tell guys all the time, if you can get that soil test done, uh, get it done. These, these labs are really quick. Um, I know we send a lot of soil down to Auburn and Auburn does a great job. They can typically have a test back to you in four or five working days. And so, you know, the big thing is you've got an idea about pH. You know, even if you see that you need, you know, you need a ton of lime on that field, there are options now. There's a liquid calcium that can be sprayed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not going to be, um, it's going to be more of a Band-Aid. It's going to last, you know, a good two or three months, but it will fix the issue or really help with the issue until you can get that pH adjusted. There's, you know, there's other products that are very, very efficient calcium products that are granular type products that, you know, may only take 450 pounds of lime of granular product to equivalent a ton of, of ag lime. Mm. And they work really quick. You know, it will start to adjust pH in three, four weeks instead of three or four months. And you can choose some different seeds too, right? I mean, if you, you may be wanting to establish 
with something that for right now, for your soil conditions right now, you're better off picking a, a seed that better matches that. That's exactly right. That That's a very good point. Yes. Um, you know, you, it, just say you get a test back and it comes back at, at say it comes back at 5.4 pH and um, you are really wanting to put a, um, a Ladina clover or a white clover in that plot. Well, you can still have a very good clover field. Just look at some of the different varieties. Um, there are things out there like um, fixation balanza clover would be a really good one. It will grow at a pH of about four, five, and up. Um, it's very tolerant of low pH soils. Even uh, frosty bursim, um, it's rated for five, two, and above. And those are those are big, big forage producing annuals. So you'll get a lot of tonnage out of those. One of the things I hear guys say whenever their food plots don't don't do well. Of course, it's never their fault. You know, they it wasn't it didn't have anything to do with them. It's always bad seed. What do you think about that? Is that is that a, is that a myth? I mean, is in this day and age, are people really getting bad seed? It is really really difficult to get bad seed if it is current year with a current label. Everything that runs through anybody's seed warehouse is tested by the state, um, whether you're in Alabama or Mississippi, Florida, wherever you're at. And those state seed inspectors do a a wonderful job. And you know, you can think about it this way, especially if you're planting a mix. You know, if it's a say if it's a six part blend, I can understand if maybe you had an issue with one of the components, but you're not going to have an issue with all six of them. Uh, you know, typically when you have a failure across the board in a field, doesn't have anything to do with the seed quality. Uh, you know, it's it goes back to you know that's farming. There was there was you know droughty condition or or wh- whatever it was, but it's typically not seed germination. How many times do you see guys trying to plant the wrong things? I mean, so I I, I get in my rut, you know, and I'm just thinking we're going to do a little clover, a little oats, a little wheat, maybe throw some brassicas in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are guys really taking into account the type of soil they have and matching the seed to that, or do people just put out what they like? Yeah, you know, I think there's a little bit of both. You've got guys that are more educated than they used to be on selecting the right site. But, but yeah, you know, if you just say if you've got a real dry, sandy site, you know, you wouldn't want to plant perennials there. Uh, you know, your, your perennial clovers, that type of thing, are just probably not going to do very well when, um, you know, maybe your brassicas handle those drier sites much, much better. Um, you know, so they'll – you know, just, just because you've read something and you want to try that variety or whatever it may be, um, you need to dig a little deeper and try to pair it with the right soil type to be successful. So let's talk a little bit about seed rate. Can you put too much out? Definitely. And we see that done a lot. We'll have guys that, um, you know, go back to brassicas that, that would love to grow a brassica plot. And, you know, those are very small seeds. And uh, typically any brassica rate is going to be around that six to eight pounds not much more than that per acre and uh you know guys will double it that's and, probably that's what yeah. that's what clint would do clint's <laughs> a competitive guy you know he's like hey if eight pounds is good then 16 is better right sure and so what happens is you end up with a stunted plot and those uh you know those brassicas are short um, they can't you're not gonna have any leaf size they are you know they're competing for nutrients and uh you know it's just not going to be a productive plot do, do those seed rates take into account things like birds and, and, and the, the, the natural loss of seed that, that's going to happen when you, when you put that out? I've heard people say, you know, 
they they overseeded for a certain reason. Is there a reason mm-hmm. to ever to overseed, or should you just always just stick right with the? You know, most of the time, stick with the manufacturer's uh, recommendation. If we've got soil moisture and we have moisture coming and the conditions are right, you're going to get good germination. Um, you know, and yeah, there's some lead way. You know, if you have say 20 percent of what you planted didn't germ, you're still probably fine with having a really good stand. Just be really careful on adding too much seed. What happens if you put out too much seed? Mm-hmm. What's happening? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, well, here, here's a good here's a here's a good example. If you plant, say, a blend that has a lot of grain with it, with say it's wheat, oats, uh, grain rye, and it also has clovers, and it has brassicas, and it has winter peas, and you plant it, say the recommendation is for a hundred pounds per acre of that mix, and you have a guy that says, "Hey, I'm gonna plant five bags on this plot." Well, what happens is the grains are going to be more aggressive right out of the ground. And so those grains are going to come in really, really thick. And they're going to smother out the rest of your clovers and your brassicas and your winter peas. They'll never show up. And so you'll end up with a monoculture of your grains. Hmm. It's all a competition thing. Uh, what whichever's the the most aggressive out of the ground at that high of a population is going to win. You're talking about the monoculture. Are, are certain seeds symbiotic with each other where, where they it benefits each other for them to be together. And do y'all think about that? Yes. Yes. No no doubt about it. There are better companion crops. No, no doubt. You've got to be careful with things like brassicas. Brassicas are big plants at maturity. They're large. So they take up a big footprint. So you've got to be careful with, uh, you know, other varieties that you'll put with it. Good companion crops for brassicas would be to add a little bit of grain with them. You know, if you're going to look at say doing a clover brassica blend, you would want to be real easy on your rate of brassicas. You know, we typically plant them at eight pounds per acre. We would probably back those brassicas down to two pounds, maybe three pounds tops. And then we would go with a, with a strong rate of clover. If we get our brassicas too heavy, we end up really hurting our clover. Uh, that'll establish a little later than brassicas. So if we're really focusing in on clover and that's, you know, really what we want to be the, the dominant presence in our fields, I mean, what type of soil types are we looking for? It depends on which type of clover we're trying to plant. If we are trying to establish perennial clovers, we want to try to find a soil type that's going to be heavier. It's going to maybe have more clay. Uh, you know, and location is, is also important. We wouldn't want to select a site that, say, is, you know, out in the middle of a cutover on a ridge that's going to, that's going to be exposed to a lot of sun in the summertime. Um, ideally we would want to try to find something that's lower lying, uh, that may catch morning sun and afternoon shade. Uh, you know, we're in the South, so, so our summers are pretty brutal, especially on perennial clover. So we want to find moisture sites that just aren't getting baked by the sun. We typically lose those perennial clover patches in June, July, August, September. So we want to find sites that, um, you know, that they're just going to be, do a better job of, of holding moisture during those real hot months. On the flip side of that, those other sites, we can still be very, very productive with clover plots. We just need to find the varieties that will do that. And these, these big annual clovers, you know, are, are perfect for some of these sites. They're typically more aggressive in the fall and winter than your perennials are. And so they can be great for killing plots. Um, they're great for your spring turkey hunts, uh, but they're going to seed out typically late spring, early summer, and um, 
you know, so there you've got an opportunity when they seed out, you could go back with a, a summer legume or, a, you know, maybe plant sunflowers or buckwheat or there's, there's opportunities to, to rotate those annual plots into summer, summer forage plots. So, you know, you've, you can kind of, you can kind of look at, at, at a summer food plot program or your food plot program as a whole and, um, you know, incorporate in your perennial plots with your annual plots. That's very interesting to think about because a lot of places have multiple soil types on the land sales side of things. We, we stare at soil classification quite a bit. You can have a 200 acre site that's got four different types of soil on it. Uh, so a lot of these guys on bigger clubs and, and bigger landowners, they've got multiple sites. And I know I've been perfectly guilty of that in the past. I just pick one kind of clover or three kinds of clover or whatever. And that's what kind of clover we plant. So it sounds like what you're saying is match it to, you got to be really specific with it if you want to ensure success. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, it, and especially longevity, um, you know, with perennials, longevity is the key. If you're going to spend the money and the time and the soil prep for perennial clovers, pick the right site. That's where you're going to be successful. And is the soil test where to start that? Oh yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I'm going to be, I'm going to be selfish here. So Clint, his, his place is in the black belt. My place is down on the coastal plain and we've got really sandy, sandy soil. I mean, you know, a lot of guys say all Alabama soil is, is sandy, but our stuff is like, it looks like a sand dune is, mm-hmm. is what we're planting in. Are there any clovers that work in super well-drained, uber sandy soil? Do you have anything like that? Yeah. Uh, you know, fixation balanza clover is going to be the one. Uh, that one will handle your lower pHs. It's going to handle that deeper drain soil. You know, that one was bred to um, to be a biomass clover. It has a huge root system, um, fixes a tremendous amount of nitrogen, is, is drought tolerant. Um, it's just a tough, tough variety. Uh, but the great thing about fixation is it is extremely attractive to whitetails. Um, it is one that um, is, is fantastic for your killing plots. Mm-hmm. The turkeys like it. Um, but you know, they, it's called fixation because it fixes so much nitrogen. Uh, we're doing a lot of stuff with fixation right now with summer crops behind these clover plots. Um, it's not uncommon to catch 250 units of nitrogen left behind by a stand of fixation balanza. And so it's, it's good for those sites. There's a a really good article by Charles Johnson on greatdaysoutdoors.com that it goes into a lot of the, how to select the best type of clover for your site and and in there he talks a lot about and and you talk a lot about the the studies that were done by was it mississippi state Mm -hmm. on on palatability is it palatability it was what was more attractive yeah it it was a uh, deer preference trial that they did at the deer lab Uh, frosty bursim actually won that trial with fixation as a close second Um, and they those are those are your big annuals Uh, you know they produce a lot of tonnage and they're very palatable the deer the deer will let you know when you have them planted for sure. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking to Daniel Bumgarner with Wildlife Management Solutions. Hey guys, we get a lot of landowners that want to know how much is my land really worth? We've recorded a video series to explain exactly how we determine that. Just head over to landhunting.com go to get the series. I'm confident it will help you achieve your land goals. And welcome back. We're talking to Daniel Bumgarner and getting some more information about fall food plots for landowners. So Daniel, how do you choose between, 
you know, using perennials or annuals or both? We try to look at, at a piece of property and, you know, and try to decide what acres do we have that are even suitable for perennials in the South. You know, perennial clover in the South is just not going to be as productive in the summertime as it would be in the northern climates. Uh, when it's August here, you know, we've got phones on the ground and um, that's when we need, uh, you know, our bucks are putting inches on, putting a lot of inches on per day. And that's when we need the groceries. We need the tonnage. And when it's 90, you know, 95 degrees, our perennial clovers just are not going to be growing a whole lot. So we try to do maybe 20%, 30% of a property in perennials. Um, and that's typically about all the decent sites that, you know, most folks have to grow a good perennial clover. Um, and then we rotate the rest of it into just big annual tonnage plots. So we plant them in the fall and we let them, you know, let them blow out in the spring. And then we plant them back in the summertime for our big, big leafy legumes, whether they're soybeans or lab lab or cowpeas. That's going to give us more tonnage for the stress periods, you know, during the year. Our, our biggest stress period in the South is definitely going to be the end of the summer. What about clover with regards to planting date? So you hear a lot about frost seeding clover in the spring. What about the winter going into the fall and winter? What's what's getting too late? Is it is it a temperature thing or is it a, uh, is it a frost thing based on where you are? Right, sure. You know, we've got a pretty good window when we can plant clover. I guess it's just up to the to your goals, what you're after. If we're trying to provide tonnage for deer season, for killing plots, we want to plant that clover, you know, during the end of September through the month of October. It gets, you know, it gets good root under it and we get some green tonnage for deer season and it's going to be further along when spring comes. If we, if we seed really late, then we're not going to have the root system under it and it's going to be behind a, a little more than is if we planted it on time in the fall when we plant everything else. Spring plantings for us in the south with clovers um, can be a real gamble. You know, we come out of the spring, you know, we have some cool weather in the spring, and then it just seems to turn into summer. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, we have trouble with weed competition. You know, if it's a newly planted uh, stand, we may, you know, we may lose that stand. Heat may get that stand. So I would, I would definitely try to plant your clovers same time you plant your fall green fields. Try to do that, you know, September, October. That's when you need to get them established. You know, one of the things that's become really popular is the hidey hole food plot, or some people call them the kill plot. But basically putting a plot back in the woods off of a bigger, maybe it's an agricultural field, maybe it's just a bigger food plot, a couple acre food plot that's got your biomass in it, that's got your bigger, uh, bigger tonnage in it, and it's expressly for the purpose of hunting over it. Do you guys make a blend or do you recommend a certain kind of seed for planting? And I'm talking micro food plots that are going to be, I would say less than a quarter acre in size. There's going to be a lot of shade typically. Uh, maybe you're planting an old logging road. Maybe you're planting a, a logging deck. Uh, maybe you've just got a spot cleared out back in a pine thicket somewhere with enough enough sunlight. What do you like for, for doing that? Yeah, sure. There's, there's a couple different ways to go about it. If you're catching sun, then you know, you've, you've got, if, if you've got plenty of sun, you're, you're going to have more, more options. Um, we do put together a no-till blend, which is heavy on your grains. We, we do run some of the, the big driller radishes with it and the, the forage rapes, some of your annual clovers with that one. Um, varieties that are just going to be a little more aggressive. 
if it is a real high traffic area, I would look at some of the the better forage grains. They just typically can rebound stronger. Even if the deer nibble them to nothing, you're still going to get regrowth. It's not like some of the brassica varieties where if they eat them completely off, you may not get any regrowth out of them. So what you're saying is, is in your selection process, you don't you don't have a blanket across the board. Here's what we use for for the hidey hole. What you're saying is, first is you need to know what your deer density is. If you've got a high deer density or low deer density, so Clint's got a high deer density. I've got a low deer density. You're saying for Clint cereal grains that's yes. going to respond better to over browsing and what do you but give me yeah yeah sure sure just just say um for in clint situation um we've got one we call our triticoke mix and it is a big forage triticale which is extremely aggressive it's very palatable and it rebounds it rebounds really well um and it's paired with the black oat which is also a very aggressive grower um it rebounds well when it's when it's grazed and the biggest thing with these is they are both they are both extremely extremely good with nitrogen. Whenever you add nitrogen, they respond and they respond fast and they can take it. When you when you put the nitrogen down, they use it. So on those small plots, you know, if you're planting something like triticote, I would nitrate about every month. Um, you can cut your rate back, but if you've got a lot of grazing pressure, it will help those plots to keep up with that grazing pressure and it make and it will make them extremely attractive as well. I like that. I, I, I hadn't really considered that. That I just would have thought you needed a bigger plot, you know. But, but you're saying really pour pour it to them with the fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it'll definitely help. Uh, now, of course, you know, if you've got a high deer density area, the larger you can make those plots. Of course, the better. Now, you know, if you make them too big, then they're not a a hidey hole plot anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, but yeah, that will help. Like. But say, you know, if you've got a place that doesn't quite have the deer density, your brassicas and some of your clovers mixed with your grains, I would try to be a little more diverse uh, because you can, you know, you're just going to have more there for the deer at different times. You talking about that over browsing reminds me, I got some friends of mine that, that uh, planted soybeans this summer and um, they were talking about trying to keep the deer out of them. And I know there's fencing you can use and they were talking about using malorganite as a deterrent. Have you had any experience with that? What, what's been your experience with it? Yeah, sure. Malorganite can work great. Uh, no doubt about it. And, it. and, you know, it's funny. It kind of seems to um, uh, different guys have different experiences, um, different application rates. Um, you know, so uh, malorganite does work. There's no doubt. We've heard a lot of success stories. We've had su- success with malorganite. Um, and I think the, the, the key to that is getting the application, getting that application done at planting and then making another application and trying to keep that grazing pressure to a minimum for the first month. When it wears, when it, yeah. how, long, how long will that last? If you, if you do it at planting, you need to reapply. Is it a week, two weeks? Yeah. You know, a lot of guys are doing it every 10 days, okay. 10 days to two weeks. And of course it depends a lot on the rain we're getting to. If we're catching a lot of rain, you probably need to make another application. Well, we covered a lot of the reasons why food plots fail. Let's say that everybody just doesn't listen to any of this and they still have a failure. What do you do in that situation? Guy comes to you and he says, hey, I, we, we planted and it's a mess. We didn't get ger- get good germination or food plots are all off color, you know, whatever it might be. What do you do at that point? If it's later on into the season, um, do you still 
go with the same, you know, okay, go get you a soil test and, and, and this, that, and the other, or is there something that you would do? Let's say it's, we're now into bow season and we've got that failure. What do you Yeah, like? sure. You know, at that point we can't overseed. There's no doubt about it. I would look, you know, if we're later in the year, look at overseeding with cereal grains. Um, wheat is a really good one to overseed with. It's a smaller seed size. So a lot of times they don't have to reprep. They can just throw it right on top, you know, and with the rain, you can still get good emergence. Um, you're catching some seed soil contact. You know, I know two years ago, we had a terrible, terrible drought in 2017. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a tremendous amount of wheat that was over, that was over, overseeded, you know, through that year. You know, you hope you're not in that situation, but it does happen. Yeah. So, Daniel, I've got a lot of clients that are involved in programs like, you know, landowner CSPs and things like that, where they're either paid or reimbursed for planting certain, primarily perennials in our area. Uh, but those plans can be pretty specific. But there's a lot of opportunity for them, you know, really just to get with you guys and order the seed that will qualify for that program directly from you so they know that what they get and put in the ground is correct, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, and we do. We see a lot of those plans. Uh, we have a lot of guys call that, um, you know, they may need some help with varieties and, and what they need to satisfy what's, you know, what, what's required. Um, so, so yeah, if you have, if you have a, uh, a plan like that that you need some help with or you need to try to find a source for the seed for that, yeah, give us a call. We can definitely help you out. Well, Daniel, I know you're going to be a busy man. You look like you got some dark circles under your eyes, and next six weeks are going to be blowing and going for you. I, <laughs> I wish you the best. And uh, if folks do have questions about their soil type, that, that's my biggest thing is you got to know yeah. your own specific property. And uh, if they want to get an idea of maybe what, what to plant, where, and, and when, uh, how can they reach out to you? And then also – if they want to get some of your seed blends, what's the best resource for them to go find out where you're sold? The best way to go about that is go to our website. It's productsforwildlifemanagement.com. You know, you, there's a contact page there. You can catch up with us. Our phone number's there. Um, you know, we have a dealer list on that website. Uh, we've got dealers all across Alabama and Mississippi. We've got a few in North Florida, a few in Louisiana. So we're, we're kind of around Southeast, but you can find that list on our website as well as our other contact information. Well, thanks for being with us today. I always enjoy having you on because I, I get thoroughly confused by the end of the, uh, end of the show. And, uh, I realize just how little I know about all this stuff, but I feel a lot smarter anyway, <laughs> but, uh, but thanks for being on with us. Good luck with the fall. Yep. Thank you. Appreciate it, Joe. Clint, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I feel like I'm not any closer to knowing what I need to do with, with my, with my food plots this fall. I know what I've been doing wrong, but I got Daniel, man. He's, He's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to that stuff. I, I just I need to take a little more time to sit down with him and talk about my specific situation before uh, before I make any decisions. But I yeah. want to know you you were talking about that CSP and I, ha I haven't had a chance to deal with that yet. Tell me tell me more about that program. We we just talked last week with uh, with the USDA about a cost share program with uh, wild hog eradication. What's the CSP situation? That is, and this is a very bird's eye view of this program, but it's, uh, it is a USDA program uh, where they pay a landowner to promote or establish and promote certain types of habitat and feed. Uh, and that can include anything from uh, planting those perennials to creating the wildlife openings to other goals. I mean, they just got a lot of 
programs that, that may not necessarily be part of the true CSP program, but they do uh, parallel it. And the main thing is, is that you get reimbursed or paid for things that you want to do to your property to enhance your wildlife habitat. That's, that's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a win for the landowner and a win for the wildlife. Where can folks go find out? Is that, is that a, they need to go to their local NRCS office to get more information about that? What, what, what it can, where can we point folks um, to get more information? So inside your USDA office, you've got an NRCS and FSA, and they both have different programs uh, that benefit landowners. So yeah, get to your local USDA office. Those are going to be your best local contacts, but you can also hop on their website and you know look them up there as well. All right, Clint. Well, I'm about ready to wrap this thing up, man. You got any new listings this week? Any uh, any unique tracks coming up for sale? Yeah, we've got several rec tracks coming up, uh, several with camps and and uh, water features and creeks and lakes and all that good stuff. So it's uh, it's busy out there right now. You know, do you see a, a lot of folks kind of quit thinking about selling during hunting season, but that's really the time when you get those the best pictures and, and, and all that. I mean, when you, when you go to sell a property, do you like to have, you know, hunting season photos? You feel like that helps you with your marketing? I always, personally, I like looking at, when I look at tracks and look at listings, I like for it to look like it's going to look during hunting season. Yeah, that's ideal, especially on these recreational properties. But, you know, that's, that's definitely the best time to get in there and, and uh, go ahead and get some pictures of some media work done. Even if you don't want it to come to market till after season, you can go ahead and, you know, enlist your agent to go ahead and start gathering that, that information, that intel, and, and have it ready for hit the market right towards the end of season or right after. When the fields are green and the woods are open and the temperatures are cooler, that's, that's when I want to be out there for sure. But That's right. All right, man. Well, let's wrap this thing up, folks. We sure do appreciate you listening. Be sure to give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate those. And be sure to subscribe, uh, whatever podcatcher you're, you're using. Uh, it really helps us keep this show going. Uh, as always, appreciate you, and we will talk to you again next week.